0: Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and worship you this morning. As we study your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would instruct us through it and that we would become more faithful and more Christ-like as a result. In your name we pray, amen. You can have a seat, thanks. My name is Angus First in Welsh, and my wife Carly and I have been members at C3 for eight years, and it's a great honor to have the opportunity to preach this morning I want to begin by telling you a story about a man called Horatio Spafford. Spafford lived in Chicago in the 1860s and 1870s, and he was a senior partner at a thriving law firm. Um, His family was wealthy, and in spring of 1871, he made a significant real estate investment in Chicago. Now, as some of you may know, just a couple of months later, at the end of 1871, the great Chicago fire swept through the city and wiped out Uh, his investment. Soon after that, his four-year-old son died of scarlet fever, and on the back of these tragedies, uh, Spafford decided to throw his efforts into rebuilding the city of Chicago. Now, this took a great deal of effort, and after two years, he decided it was time for him and his family to take a break, and so they decided to go on vacation to England, Now, he was busy with work, so what he did was he sent his wife and four daughters on ahead of him. So they sailed across the Atlantic, but just a couple of days later, Horatio Spafford received a telegram. The ship had been struck by another ship and had sunk with the loss of 226 passengers, including Horatio Spafford's four daughters, aged 11, 9, 5, and 2 years old. His wife, Anna, was one of 76 survivors, and when she landed in Cardiff, she immediately sent Horatio that telegram, and all it said was two words, saved alone. Now the reason I tell you this story is because there's a number of parallels between it and the passage we're gonna read today. One obvious one is uh, shipwreck, both, both uh, stories have shipwrecks in, but also we see the great faith Um, of the men involved in the stories and that faith coming through the God that they trust and believe in. So we're going to come back to Horatio Spafford's story and see how it ends a bit later. But now, let's look at today's passage. The passage today is Acts 27, and we're going to go through chapter 28, verse 16, and you can find it on page 936 on the Bibles in the chairs, and it's also going to be up behind me. So Acts chapter 27, verse 1. Before I start, let me tell you what we're going to do. It's a long passage, as you may have just realised. And so, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a section, and then I'll summarise the next section, and our section. I'll talk us through how it's going. But that's how we're going to go through it. Uh, so I'll start off reading in Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So, reaching this point at the beginning of chapter 27, Paul had been in Caesarea for over two years, facing all these interrogations. This is what Chris and Pastor John have been preaching about the last couple of weeks, how Paul has been interrogated by Festus and Agrippa, and that's been going on since chapter 23. Uh, In the middle of this time, in chapter 25, verse 11, what Paul does is he makes an appeal to Caesar, and like Chris said last week, that kind of, once you do that as a Roman citizen, then you have the right to make your appeal to Caesar, and Caesar's in Rome. So as Festus says... To Caesar you you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So this is what's happening. Paul's on his way to Rome because he appealed to Caesar. It's kind of like appealing to the highest authority, the Supreme Court, and you automatically get to have that hearing. So there should be a map appearing behind me soon because we're going to summarize verses 4 to 8. So this is a map of the Mediterranean, and you'll see Paul in the bottom right. Paul gets put on a boat... Um, in Caesarea, he sails to Sidon, that's where he met with his friends, then on to Myra up the coast, gets put on another boat, sails further around the coast, and he ends up, he juts down onto the island of Crete, and ends up in that place called Fair Havens. Uh, The reason they sail around the coast is because it's safer than just kind of sailing through the open waters, Uh, but they've ended up in Fair Havens. Before we rejoin in verse 9, something I want to point out is that from the very beginning of this passage, you may have noticed that it says we, and so this is one of three occasions in the book of Acts where the author of the book, Luke, um, is writing because he was there. So everything we read today is an eyewitness account by Luke who was there and saw everything which happened. So let's rejoin in verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbour of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So Paul is an experienced traveller. Even as we've gone through the Book of Acts, we've been talking about how he's been journeying and sailing around. And so he knows that fall in the Mediterranean was not a good time to sail. I want to point out that the ESV, the way it treats Paul's words here, I think they kind of soften him a little bit, honestly. Uh, So in verse 10... The word translated sirs, that word, it doesn't have to be translated sirs. It can just be kind of a general men um, or a way of addressing. So they're smarter than me. They decided to translate it sirs, but you don't have to. Now, the word before that, Paul advised them, that word, a number of different translations, decide to go all the way with the word admonished. And the word in Greek is actually interesting. It only appears two times in the New Testament, and both those times are in this chapter. And what the word is is taking the word praise and turning it into the opposite, so kind of unpraising someone, mispraising someone. So the word which the angels when they praise God, uh, when Jesus was born, Paul is basically saying, "I'm doing the opposite of that for your idea to sail now. This is a really bad idea." Um, so that's that's the way Paul is speaking here. And then so to summarize verses 13 to 19, and their idea was just to kind of along the coast a bit to Crete. It wasn't a long journey. They thought they could make it into a better harbor. Um, but they decide to ignore Paul and go with what the sailors and the owner of the ship says. And so they get a good wind. They're like, great, we can just sail around Crete, land in the harbor we want to stay in for the winter. But as verses 13 to 19 say, unfortunately, things turn bad really quickly, and the map is going to come up here soon because what happens is a storm blows them out into the middle of the Mediterranean, into the open sea, that big red arrow going out towards um, Italy. And things get so bad that something they did at that time was they took huge ropes and they actually tied them round the whole of the ship to try and hold the ship together. That gives you some idea of how bad this storm was. So rejoining in verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So as I kind of read out, Paul engages in some very clear I told you so. Uh, But he does tell them good news that an angel has told him that they'd all be fine and that no one was going to die. So that was good news for them. Now, to summarize verses 27 to 29, there were 14 nights of storm all day and all night. We we just read they couldn't see the stars, which meant they couldn't navigate. They didn't know where they were. And so with Paul's final words ringing in their ears, that they had to run aground somewhere, they start to think they're getting near land. Maybe they can hear the breakers crashing on the shore. And so they use rope to check how deep it is. And as they do that, they start to realize, yes, we're getting close to land. The the sea is getting shallower, and so they all just pray for day to come, although some of them had another idea as we rejoin in verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves, We were in all, 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now we're going to come back to this speech Paul makes and look at it in much more detail. Um, But it's nice to see Paul's pastoral side coming through. They've been at sea for 14 days in this huge storm, longer than that, but in this huge storm. And, uh, you know, they probably haven't felt like eating. They've been rationing food. And so Paul says, hey, we're about to run aground. You guys need to eat. Um, so he really cares for them here. And so to summarize the next section, 39 to 41, they see land, and they see a great beach where they can just slide up and run aground. It's going to be great. So that's what they aim for, but this couple of weeks of sailing, it gets even worse because what they don't count on is the reef, which they can't see. They land on the reef, and the storm's still going on. The boat's stuck, and the waves are just pounding against the boat, and it starts breaking up. So let's see if this story gets any crazier as we head into chapter 28. So verse 42 of 27. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. The rest of this passage, verses 11 to 16 in chapter 28, it just says they spent three months in Malta, they took a ship to Rome. Some Christians came to meet them on the coast, and then they traveled together, and Paul made it to Rome. Um, And as you can see, when Paul, he ministers, he heals people, he cares for the Maltese people, and in return, they provide food for Paul and his companions before they head to Rome. So they provide for their every need. So that uh, draws to the conclusion of reading through the passage, and I hope you'd agree that this is a great story to get to look at together this morning, but I also hope as we go through it, you'll see that it operates on a number of different levels. So as we dig in, I hope you see that. Uh, The main point of today's story is that God has a plan. God has a plan. So those points are going to be up behind me. So that's the main point. And then we have three points which I'm going to read out now. God has a plan for his people. God has a big plan. And God's plans will not fail. Now, those are going to stay up behind me most of the time we're going through today because we're just going to keep hitting them at various points as we go through. Now, as we've been through Acts we've seen the start of the early church. We saw Pentecost. We've had characters like Paul, Peter. We've seen miracles, missionary journeys, churches planted, and the gospel going out to the Gentiles. It's important to remember that the book of Acts was written by Luke, who also wrote the gospel of Luke. And so he wrote those books with the intention of them going together as a two-part series. Now, in our Bible, they're separated by Uh, the Gospel of John, which makes sense to put all the Gospels together. But Luke wrote those two books with the intention of them going together. And it's been said that the book of Acts is really can be viewed as the Great Commission, just all together in one book. And where the book ends is Paul arriving in Rome, as I just said, the center of the known world at that time, the center of the Gentile world. But how, as we've gone through the book of Acts, how was it that Paul has got to this point of getting to Rome? I'm just going to take a couple of steps back in Acts to see in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, we're not going to have it up here, but in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, um, this is when Paul was in Jerusalem and right when he was taken to Caesarea, which is where he sailed to Rome from, um, he was in Jerusalem and the night before he left to go to Caesarea, uh, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify it also in Rome. So this was the first time that Paul was actually told by God, you are going to Rome. But even going back from Acts 23 to Acts chapter 19, in verse 21, Paul's in Ephesus, and this is when he wants to go to Jerusalem. What he says is, after I've been there to Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. So even before God tells him he's definitely going there, Paul knows The importance of going to Rome to speak to the Christians there. We know he wrote the letter to the Roman Christians, which we're going to talk a bit about later. But even in chapter 19 of Acts, Paul knows he needs to go to Rome. And then even before that, in Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul, um, God tells Ananias when he's about to go and help Saul lose the scales from his eyes, he tells, uh, God tells Ananias that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings. And so while Paul goes to a number of different places with Gentiles and different rulers, as I've said, Rome was the center of the Gentile world and Caesar was obviously the ultimate ruler. Um, So even going back to Paul's conversion, before he even really knew what he was going to do, God had said, you're going to go to the Gentiles, which meant probably going to Rome. So overall, God has a plan, and that is to get Paul to Rome. This is why it's interesting. At the the verse right before I started reading, the end of chapter 26, the very last verse, Agrippa says something to the effect of, hmm, if Paul hadn't appealed to Caesar, then he would have been a free man by now. And so it makes it seem like Paul's really messed up by appealing to Caesar. He could have been a free man. But what Agrippa isn't counting on is that Paul's ultimate desire isn't freedom, Paul is a slave to Christ. And so his ultimate desire is to serve Christ. And that meant, as he'd been told in chapter 23, going to Rome. And God's kind of side of the bargain and what he needed to do was keep Paul alive so he could get to Rome. And we see this in this chapter and a half a number of times in At the beginning in verse 3 of chapter 27, uh, the Roman centurion allows Paul to go into a city with his friends and meet the Christians there and be cared for. Now, that's not really like saving Paul's life, but it does show that he gets to spend some time with his brothers and sisters. I mean, if you've been a prisoner for the last two years, I think we'd all want to have that time with our fellow Christians. So Paul is allowed to do that. Um, He's not a violent uh, prisoner, so this would kind of be normal to allow kind of a house arrest But it's still significant that Luke mentions that detail. And then later in the passage, in 42 and 43, you may remember that the soldiers, when the shipwreck happens, they're about to kill all the prisoners. Because in Rome, as you may know, if you were a soldier guarding a prisoner, if the prisoner escaped, the punishment for you, the soldier, was that you died because you hadn't done your job properly. Um, So the soldiers want to kill the prisoners, but the centurion, that same centurion, he stopped them from killing him, which would have been a relatively normal thing to do at that time. And so we see Paul's life being preserved. Then, everyone's favorite part of the story, the snake clamping onto his hand and then him flinging it off into the fire. The Maltese people, they obviously knew what kind of snake this was. They were expecting him to die, but that doesn't kill him. Um, And then what we've kind of skipped over is the shipwreck. Uh, It would have been very easy, even though they were in sight of land, uh, that the shipwreck would have led to Paul's death. But no, God preserves his life. So this is just a couple of things in this passage, but we've been reading through Acts the last couple of months. Even if you look in Paul's letters, there's a number of different occasions where Paul comes very close to death, including three other shipwrecks before this one in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, And we've read about riots, we've read about plots to kill Paul, but all the time God preserves Paul's life so he can get to Rome. So far I've been talking a lot about God's plan for Paul but it's also true that God has a plan for all his people. Now, as I've thought about it, there's kind of two ways that immediately appear, uh, appear to me which this could come about. Firstly, God could kind of make a plan for Paul and then make a plan for his friend Aristarchus who sails with him, and for Luke, and be, God could be like a master puzzler and just make sure that everything fits just so so that those plans don't knock into each other. Um, so that would be one way. Another way is that God has a big overarching plan and that the way he directs each of the individual plans of his followers is to feed into this big overarching plan. And that is the big plan. I've got in uppercase up there and I would argue to you that that second one is the truth, that God has a big plan. I think we see this in the overarching storyline of the whole Bible from the beginning till the end. And even in today's passage, uh, as we dig in, in a little bit, I think you're going to see that today. So let's go back to Paul's second speech, verses 33 to 38. I'm going to read that again. Chapter 27, verses 33 to 38. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, let me read you from the Gospel of Luke, which again, remember that's by Luke, who also wrote Acts. We're going to go back to Luke chapter 22, verse 19. Now, this is Luke's account of the Last Supper. And so let me read to you Luke chapter 2, verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So that was Jesus talking um, at the Last Supper. And I don't know if you've been looking at the passage or looking at me, but look at me for this last one because if we go further back in Luke to the feeding of the 5,000, in Luke chapter nine, verse 16, this is Luke's account of the feeding of the 5,000. It says, Jesus, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. So hopefully as you've listened to it, and you've looked at me, I tried to make it obvious, but there's a number of similarities between these three different passages which you've seen and heard. And so why, why does Luke construct his narratives this way? And I believe it's because what Luke is trying to do is tie back Acts 27, tied back to the Last Supper, tied back to the feeding of the 5,000. And I'm going to argue now that it goes back even further than that uh, to the most significant event in the history of the Israelites, which is the Exodus. This, you may remember, is when God used Moses to lead his people out of captivity in Egypt. He led them through the Red Sea and then cared for them and provided food, the bread of heaven, the manna, in the wilderness for 40 years. And so what you can do in very, very, very broad terms is break down the exodus to a water crossing going through the Red Sea and then a wilderness feeding when God fed his people in the wilderness for 40 years. And what's interesting is if you look at Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts, they structure their gospel accounts to tell you the same thing, because right before the feeding of the 5,000, in those two gospel accounts, the story right before is Jesus walking on water. So you've got this same thing, Jesus walking on water, a water crossing, and then Jesus providing a wilderness feeding for 5,000 people. And what this is showing is that Jesus is leading his people out in the new exodus, but not only that, it then ties forward after Jesus' death and resurrection to the same thing of, uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 27, you have a water crossing, a very, very difficult water crossing, I may note, um, of a couple of weeks of stormy seas as the gospel's making its final um, point to the capital of the Gentile empire. And then, right at the very end, a wilderness feeding um, as Paul feeds the people on the ship. And so what Luke is doing through his two accounts is showing us that Paul traveling to Rome, it's all part of God's big plan. Um, So God is taking Paul uh, and his companions to Rome. He's preserving them. He's preserving their life. We talked about that. And they're going to be able to go and preach the gospel in the capital of the Gentile world. And the message they preach there, that message itself, it's going to tie together the Exodus and it's going to tie together the Last Supper Jesus' death and resurrection, because there's freedom from captivity to sin. That's what Paul is going to preach, freedom from captivity to sin through the death and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus. And Pastor John, in two weeks' time, he's going to finish up the book of Acts, and where Acts ends is with Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance to Jews and to Gentiles. As you look back in history, the gospel was in Rome, and it went from Rome to the ends of the earth, um, as many men and women obeyed the call which was given to Paul um, and given to all of us to take the gospel of Christ to all nations. And I would argue that the reason you and I are sitting here today, that story, it goes back to the Garden of Eden, it goes through the cross, and from there it runs through the early church in Rome, only getting there because of Paul surviving the shipwreck God's plan for Paul was part of his plan for the whole world, which includes the plan he had for each of us here this morning. Because what is true for Paul, that God had a plan for him, is true for each of his followers sitting there this morning. God has a plan for his people. Um, God created you and your family. He loves you. And if you're in Christ, he has a good plan for your future. And you can be confident of that because God's plans will not fail. And the reason we can be confident of that is because of what we read in God's Word. Um, For example, what Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome before he even made this journey. So we're not going to have it on the screen behind us. If you want, you can turn to Romans chapter 8 and Romans 8.28. A uh, very famous verse. I'm sure I could go to Lifeway before it closes down and find postcards and really pretty scenes with sheep resting on a mountainside with this verse. It's very encouraging to Christians, and so it should be. But if you look at the context it comes in, it doesn't come in a kind of sheep on a mountainside, uh, at least not in good weather. It could be a storm. Because if you read in verse 18, right before Romans 8:28, it says... For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul is setting this verse in the context of suffering. Verses 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the firstfruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So suffering... Inward groaning. This is where Romans eight twenty eight comes. That God works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And then what follows it? Verse thirty one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And verse thirty five. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, God has a plan for his people, and God's plans will not fail. But it is is at this point that you might legitimately ask me if you're allowed to talk. You are allowed to talk, but if you could shout it out, you'd probably say, what is God's plan for me, Angus? And sorry, I'm not going to be able to tell you the answer to that. But not many times does God speak directly to someone like he did to Paul through an angel and tell them, you're gonna go to Rome, or whatever it is. That doesn't happen very often, so I can't stand up here and tell you the individual plan God has for your life. But what I can tell you is that this Bible is God's word revealed to us, and it can provide a huge amount of general guidance about the way we should live our lives and what we should pursue. Also, we have the Holy Spirit living inside each one of us as we pray. We can ask God to provide wisdom and direction And uh, we also have the church and Christians around us. With their spirit-filledness, they can also help guide us. But I'm not going to leave you with nothing. The situation I do want to speak into this morning is where you might feel you may be here right now, or you may have been here recently, or you're going to be here very soon, because this is going to happen, where through no fault of your own, your life just feels like it's not under the control of a good and powerful God. That's the situation I want to talk about, and that's a situation when I want to. that's a situation where I want to bring back in the story of Horatio Spafford, the one we talked about earlier, the shipwreck. So after receiving that telegram of his, from his wife, he immediately traveled to London, got on a ship, and while he was on that journey, the captain told him, as they were passing over a certain point in the Atlantic, Mr. Spafford, this is the, the point where your wife and daughter's ship sank and where your daughter's lost their lives. Now, any of these events, uh, losing that real estate investment, his son dying, his four daughters dying in tragic circumstances, any of these events, singly, I think could destroy a man. But Horatio Spafford's response was on that very same ship journey to London. He wrote a hymn, and that hymn is, It Is Well With My Soul. Sheridan very kindly agreed to play that after communion, so we're going to have an opportunity to sing that ourselves. But let me read verse 1. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, the only way that Horatio Spafford could write those words at the time he wrote them, or that Paul could carry on through so much adversity was by knowing that God's plan for their life was better. That God's plan for their lives was better than to automatically give them health, happiness, and safety. They knew that God had a better plan, and so Horatio Spafford knew that despite a disaster which he could not explain, God was still faithful, and God's plan would not fail. And I have no doubt that Horatio Spafford would have agreed with Paul's words in Acts chapter 27, verse 25. So take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. That's what Paul said to the sailors when he tells them that they're all going to survive. And that would be the verse, if you're going to think on one verse this week, that would be the one. Acts 27, verse 25. So take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. Now I want to pause here and make sure that you've been noticing something, um, one thing that I've really been stressing, and that is, it's up there in black and white, that God has a plan for his people. So that leads to the questions of what if you're not one of God's people and what does it mean to be one of God's people? And this is something which the Bible is very clear on. It's clear that everyone is sinful, everyone falls short of God's perfect standard. And all of the sinful people in the world, they're split into two groups. Those who have right standing with God and those who don't. And so while it's true that God has a general love for everyone who he created in his image, for that group, sin separates us from his holy presence. And the only way that sin can be removed so that you're in the group with right standing from God is through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. So for those of you here this morning, and if you know that you're not trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection as your only way to be in right standing with God, it's my solemn duty to tell you that all the promises I've been talking about this morning, about God having a plan for his life, those don't apply to you. But God is merciful. If we look at those sailors, uh, they were preserved from death because of Paul needing to go to Rome, but at one point they would die and they would have to give account for their sins. So I would urge you this morning, consider the length God has gone to, to provide salvation for you. He sent his one and only son, to die for you on your behalf. And he ordained through space and time over thousands of years and over thousands of miles for you to hear his message today through me. And that only came about, I would argue, because of Paul surviving that shipwreck and making it to Rome. Now as we read in that story, as Paul ate with these same sailors almost two millennia ago, it's possible that he explained the significance of what he was doing as he broke the bread and gave it to them and maybe tied it back to Jesus at the Lord's Supper. And maybe in God's wondrous mercy, some of those sailors came to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. As a church, we're about to share in the Lord's Supper, and that's a remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection on behalf of his people. So if you're not trusting in that death and resurrection yet, I would say to you, it doesn't make sense for you to share in this Lord's Supper yet. But what I would also tell you is that invitation from God, it still stands today to be a part of his covenant people through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Part of God's big plan, that invitation still stands. So we're going to have two stations down here. We're also going to have a gluten-free option. And myself and some other leaders will be along the sides of the church. Um, And so we'll have the opportunity to pray with you if you're interested in knowing more about receiving the death and resurrection of Jesus to take care of your sins or if that situation I mentioned earlier where you're just feeling your life is dark and there can't be a good God who's in control of your life, even if that's something you, you trust in. And so while that's happening, Sheridan has kindly said she's going to play It Is Well With My Soul, and I would encourage you to reflect on God's plan. So while singing the song, think on the faith in God, which Horatio Spafford showed during the storms of his life. Think on the faith in God which Paul showed as he faced death at sea. And finally, think on the faithfulness of the God who they both trusted in and who had a plan for each of them and had a big plan which spans eternity and the whole world. And that plan was to save a people for himself. Let us pray. God, we love you and we thank you that you loved us enough to send your son to die on our behalf. Please help us to trust the plan you have for each of us and help us to praise you in any and every circumstance and say like Paul, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And with Horatio Spafford and fellow Christians down the ages, it is well with my soul. In your name we pray, amen.